You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. I want to continue this series the body, it's part four under the title, The Unction. Pastor Brian Jones writes, Soon after my conversion and entering preparation for the ministry, I visited a young family in the hospital whose daughter was dying of leukemia. On the way down the corridor, praying, hoping, pleading with God for him to heal her, I suddenly became aware of the fact that God had spoken to me. He would heal that little girl. So I laid my hands on her and prayed and told the father of the little girl he had only to believe and turned to the mother of the little girl and told her she had only to have faith. And then I went home. Two weeks later, that little girl died. I saw the father in a pizza hut a few years later. I slowly extended my right hand to shake his, but he didn't respond in kind. He just stared. His eyes welled up with tears, and then he just slowly walked away. It's hard when we feel deep in our bones that we've heard a word from the Lord. And we're going to discuss this morning a gift that God has given to the body that sometimes is intentionally abused and sometimes just unintentionally not handled well. And I hope to better prepare you and equip you to use the gifts that God has given to the body. We've been discussing the unction. You want to write this down, but the unction is an old word for the Holy Spirit's anointing or empowerment. His anointing or empowerment. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, this goes back to a couple of sermons ago, we concluded that the unction does what? Functions. The unction functions. And here's the idea. If you recognize that you are a sinner and you turn from your sin, you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you repent of it and you trust Jesus Christ alone as your Savior and God and commit your life to Him, you become a disciple, you become a Christian. At that moment, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, begins a relationship with you. He begins to change you. He begins to remake you after God's design, His purpose. He wants to make you more like His Son, Jesus. And not only does the Holy Spirit do that in your life, the Holy Spirit also gives you a spiritual gift. What is a spiritual gift? You can write this down. A spiritual gift is a supernatural ability. A supernatural ability 
given by the Holy Spirit to each believer for the good of the church, for the glory of God, and our personal joy. If you look in the notes provided for you, you'll see that there are various spiritual gifts, gifts listed throughout Scripture. And what we're saying is that somewhere in the body, God has placed you, and I say the body, the local church, God has placed you here, you're not here by accident, and he's also given you a service or an activity, literally an energy to work or to perform in this local church for the good of the neighbor sitting beside you, for the glory of God so the unbelievers might come to faith in him. And then I'll tell you right now, there is nothing more exciting in the life of a Christian when they discover their spiritual gift and begin to use it for the good of others. It's a joyous thing. And today we're going to look at the last four in our list from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now it's going to list five, but we looked at the first one last week. So we're going to look at the last four this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. I'm going to read the whole thing. We discussed this one last week. To another, that means to another believer, another Christian, another part of the church. The performing of miracles, that's a gift. And here's our new territory. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. I'm going to take just a couple of moments to define what each of these last four gifts are. The first gift, and you see it there in your notes and you can write the definition down, is the gift of prophecy. This is the supernatural ability to declare the revealed will of God. This is the supernatural ability to declare the revealed will of God. Now, I want to break that down. I, I see in Scripture, and this is me interpreting Scripture, you're not going to necessarily find these classifications or categories explicitly taught in Scripture, but if I had to schematically look at the Bible and see the gift of prophecy functioning in the Old and New Testament, I kind of see three levels or three categories of prophecy. This first level is the prophecies of eternal revelation, of eternal revelation. In our vernacular, how we would put that, this is the apostles of Jesus, the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias, his replacement in Acts chapter 1, plus the apostle Paul and their associates. So the apostles of Jesus and their associates like Mark and Luke who received, spoke, and wrote the text of the Bible. Okay, so one function of the prophetic gift is that God gave this gift to men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to reveal eternal truths about God. All right, I do not believe that type of prophesying is available or accessible today. I believe the Bible is complete, and the reason for it is this, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. You can't get any better revelation than Jesus himself. He is the ultimate. 
And so when the apostles look back and explain the life and doctrine and teaching of Jesus, we can't get any higher revelation, any more eternal or perfect truth than Jesus. So no matter this, I need you to catch this, if someone prophesies in such a way that they should tell you you need to take their words and staple it to the back of your Bible, they're lying to you. This book is everything we need to know who God is. But here's another part, and this part I do believe active, is active and available to the church, is prophecies of temporal revelation. Prophecies of temporal revelation. And I'm going to give you two proof texts. I'm going to be utterly transparent with you. One's in Acts 11, verses 27 through 30. You might want to write this down. Acts 11, verses 27 um, through 30. And Acts 21, verses 10 through 12. Acts 21, verses 10 through 12. And it's about this New Testament Christian prophet. And he's a man by the name of Agabus. And what would happen is that Agabus would function as a spokesperson to deliver prophecies of practical revelation for certain temporal matters. Let me give you a for instance. So in Acts eleven twenty seven through 30, Agabus prophesied a famine would happen in the land and the church took action. They took up an offering. So I want you to catch this. When Agabus says there's a famine coming and the church should prepare himself, is he giving us eternal revelation about God? No. He is giving us revelation about something that's happening here in this moment. All right? So this does not, so to speak, affect what we know about God and the Bible. In uh, Acts 21, 10 through 12, Agabus, this New Testament Christian prophet, prophesied the circumstances of the Apostle Paul's arrest and consequently the church begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So I want you to see this, that prophets cannot, they not only function on the eternal revelation disclosing God's character and nature and dealings with people, but prophecy is also a gift where God might give insight into the church about what might happen in the future. And I think that's possible for today. And then I would go as far to say there's a third level. And it's the prophetic function of biblical preaching. That's a bigger idea. And, and I want you to know, I'm aware that today's sermon is a higher level. Okay, And what I mean by that is you're going to have to work hard listening and understanding and obeying. Prophetic functioning of biblical preaching. Let me explain. When you go and read the Old Testament prophets, we tend to just make synonymous with prophecy always about foretelling what's happening in the future. If you spend any time with the prophets at all, the old and new, you find that they spend a lot of time foretelling, just preaching. Telling people to repent, challenging people's way of life, encouraging God's people with a better future. This does not, if you go read Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's not verse on verse about what's going to happen in the future. Sometimes they're even dealing with issues that happened in the past, saying we need to correct these things. And so one of the functions of, of the prophetic office we find in 1 Corinthians 14.3. Just write the reference down. 1 Corinthians 14.3. Notice this. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. 
for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. Now, here's what you got to catch, is that is eerily similar to another thing that's mentioned in the Bible. We see the Apostle Paul, when he writes to young pastor Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he tells uh, Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, notice this, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. So notice how prophetic preaching and pastoral preaching, they will overlap. They'll touch each other. I'll go ahead and tell you this. I think if you've ever heard a great preacher, he probably had some kind of gift of prophecy in the sense that he could encourage, exhort, rebuke, and challenge. That's the part we come away with going, oh, that was so good. That was so amazing. But here's the difference between a prophet of the Old and New Testament when it comes to eternal revelations and temporal revelations and the prophetic function of a biblical preacher. And I like how Warren Wiersbe put it. Is that the prophets of the Old and New Testament that we see in the book of Acts and like Jeremiah and Isaiah, they got their messages immediately from God. Immediately from God. God spoke to them, and they spoke God's words. The difference between today's prophetic functioning and theirs is here's the way. We have the word of God immediately. It's given to us in this book. We don't get it directly. We get it indirectly. It's handed to us. So we studied the word of God to show ourselves approved. But here's what I want you to notice. Either way, you are coming in contact with the revelation of God. And a true gift of prophecy will encourage you, exhort you, rebuke you, challenge you, lift you up based on this revelation. I want you to uh, to hear this one verse. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Don't despise prophecies. Don't despise prophecies. But test all things. Hold on to what is good. So don't despise prophecy, don't look down on it, but you have to test it, which comes to gift number two. Write this one down. So the second gift we see in this last part of the list is distinguishing between spirits. Distinguishing between spirits. This is the supernatural ability to discern, to discern whether a prophetic utterance like I'm giving to you right now is from the Holy Spirit, a demonic spirit, or the unaided human spirit, or a better way to put it is human imagination. So notice what the Bible encourages us to do. Please catch this, church. You are not called to be passive listeners of prophecy and preaching. When someone gets up in the name of God and speaks and says he has a word of God, the church needs to be on high alert. Do you hear me? You are responsible to test and evaluate that what is coming from his mouth, what is the motivation and what is the spiritual nature of the thing behind it. So when the New Testament and Old Testament prophets spoke, the Holy Spirit spoke through them. When the prophecies were false, it could have been in one of two ways. It could have been a demonic spirit that was falsely prophesying, 
Or, like when we turn to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah had some antagonists, some opponents, and they stood up and falsely prophesied simply because they didn't like what Jeremiah had to say. They did it of their own heart and their own imagination. And can I go ahead and press it in on you? Like the illustration I gave you at the beginning of the sermon. I think there's a lot of good-intentioned Christians who imagine things. They imagine impossible things. They imagine good things. And sadly, instead of being on high alert, they'll go to another believer or to even an unbeliever and speak in the name of God, use God's name, and says, I believe God told me to tell you this. Now, you're free to do that, but I want to make you aware of two things. Number one, a false prophecy can come from your own imagination. You can dream it up. I think sometimes we use this example too much. Well, if it's, too, like if it's, if it's a big enough dream, it must come from God. That's unbiblical. You will not find that in Scripture. We tend to think, I'll use an example this way. If you want to find prophecies coming out, find two people who've fallen in love, and they'll tell you a lot about what God told them. Well, God told me to marry her. A lot of times, that's their own imagination. They feel so strongly, they go, this must be God. C.S. Lewis says, eros, erotic love, speaks with the voice of God, but it's not God. And so many times, we, we think we're hearing the voice of God, and we're not. We're just simply hearing our own imagination. But I need you to be careful, because you need to catch this. One, you're using God's name in vain. I need you to sense that. We need to be careful. I think one phrase we should just eliminate from our speak, okay, is God told me blank. All right? Because you, you better be utterly sure that when you stand before him in judgment, he goes, yo, I didn't tell you anything. You're ready to deal with that. But then the second thing is this. We as Christians and the church need to stop playing stupid and start testing what people say. Open up your Bibles and see if I'm telling you the truth. Too many people have been duped because they refuse to open up the book. And we bring down judgment on ourselves. We deserve it when we refuse to study the Scriptures and see if those things were so. So what are the tests? What are the biblical tests by how you can evaluate me, any preacher who would occupy this pulpit, any podcast you'd listen to, any YouTube video you'd watch, or any of the crazy televangelists that are on the TV? You can just go ahead and throw most of them all into a wholesale boat. They're lying to you. They want your money. Made it easy for you. Here's the two tests. One is Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. I'm just going to let God speak. Listen to this. It says, If a prophet or someone who has dreams arises among you and proclaims a sign or wonder to you, and that sign or wonder he has promised you comes about. Oh, okay. So a prophet gets up and goes, You know what? I think God said this and this is going to happen, and then it happens. Is this a true prophet? Nobody's going to take the bait. Good, okay. Listen to what Yahweh goes on to say. But he says, let us follow other gods. So notice just what happened. A prophet gets up, does a miracle, and goes, let's follow somebody other than Jesus. 
what should we do? He goes, listen to this. Let us worship them. Do not listen to that prophet's words or to that dreamer, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You must follow the Lord your God and fear Him. You must keep His commands and listen to Him. You must worship Him and remain faithful to Him. So the first test is this. If they say anything, no matter how powerful the demonstration is, if they say anything that contradicts God's already revealed will, it is false. They are false. You turn the TV off, you close the subscription to the YouTube channel, you cut off your podcast. They're a false prophet. And there's a second test. Listen to this one. Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22. Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22. You may say to yourself, Yahweh's anticipating his people. He says, you may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? When do we know God hasn't spoken through a prophet? He says, when a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message the Lord has not spoken the prophet has spoken presumptuously. He spoke from his own imagination. I need you to catch what, you, what she's saying here. So if he says this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, what is he? A false prophet. So notice what two things have to happen. The prophecy has to occur and it has to not contradict God's already revealed will. Now, in case you didn't catch this clear, how right or how often do prophets have to be right in order to be considered a prophet of God? All the time. You can have a 99% right accuracy and you're a false prophet. The devil knows he just needs to get it right 99% of the time. And we stupidly follow them. God only speaks the truth. He cannot tell a lie. He cannot falsely imagine something. So when God speaks, when the apostles speak, they speak the truth. Nothing added to, nothing taken away. It's perfect. So I want you to see that if someone doesn't pass one of those two tests, they are a false prophet. Do not listen to them. Uh, Yahweh says this, do not fear them. <laughs> Don't show them any respect. Don't show them any honor. The third gift we see, different kinds of tongues. Different kinds of tongues. This is the supernatural ability to speak an unlearned human language. The supernatural ability to speak an unlearned human language. Now let me tell you, because I know this is one of those ones where visions, you know, pictures, images come up in our mind. Tongues, or speaking in tongues, are not nonsensical gibberish. If that were the case, by definition, if it was nonsensical gibberish, by definition, it could not be interpreted. What you're going to see, though, is Paul is going to command what? interpretation. So if it's just this ecstatic, nonsensical gibberish with gentleness and respect, more than likely it's a counterfeit. It is not the real deal. Now, I'll go ahead and 
answer this. Does the speaker of tongues know what he is saying? I do want to make it fair. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 13. If you want to just flip a couple of chapters, just two chapters, Paul gets into it a little bit more about the gift of tongues. He, he actually says this. Paul speaks in tongues. He does not devalue it. He does not look down on it or despise it. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 3. He says, therefore, the person who speaks, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 14, 13. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. Did you catch that? That the person that this gift may come on may not know exactly what it is that they're saying. All right, so the speaker may not know, but I need you to catch this. It's not nonsensical or it couldn't be interpreted. Now, are all believers expected to speak in tongues? That's the one you get hit up with all the time. And I can give you a definitive answer. And it's really, it's so explicit in Scripture, it's sarcastic. I'm not lying to you. Look at what Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29. And we're going to play a little game. This is not a trap. I want you just to answer it and see how this list goes. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29. He's going to ask some rhetorical questions. And you just shout out the answer. Are all apostles... No. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Some of you, I wish you were. <laughs> do all do miracles? Do all have the gifts of healings? Do all speak in other tongues? Yes. You see how that doesn't work? He just answered it rhetorically. Everybody knows that not everybody speaks in tongues. Look at the last one. Do all interpret? No. It's in the middle of the list of no's. And so here's the point. I sadly think some churches in the evangelical world, we fall into the same trap that Paul's trying to get the Corinthians out of. We like some of these spectacular gifts, and we assign greater, higher value to them. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not a genuine believer. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not really close to God. And Paul would go, do all speak in tongues? No. No. No, so it cannot be, tongues cannot be a barometer of your spiritual health. It's a gift that's given. And it's ultimately, you're going to see this, it's only to function three ways. I'll go ahead and help you with this. One, for the good of the church, it's actually meant to edify the church. And without interpretation, it cannot edify, so the person's to be kept silent. That means that the edification just happens personally for the, per for the person that it happens onto. They receive personal joy and a buildup of faith. And the third thing that Paul, he's actually a seeker-sensitive guy. Catch this. He is so afraid that an outsider or an unbeliever might come into the church, see everybody speaking in tongues, and go, this is crazy nonsense I want out. And so Paul's aware of all of that. You can go read it in 1 Corinthians 14. So it's meant to help unbelievers come to faith, to build up the faith of other people, and to help build up the faith of the very individual. All right? But if it doesn't do those things, if it's not doing those things, it's probably a counterfeit. Let's look at the last one, number four, the interpretation of tongues. The interpretation of tongues. This is the supernatural ability to translate an unlearned human language. 
the supernatural ability to translate an unlearned human language. The Apostle Paul does not despise the gift of tongues. I do not either. But he does contend that without interpretation, it is of no value to the church. And remember, the whole idea of 1 Corinthians 12 is to show that the Spirit has given a manifestation of himself to every believer for the common good of the church. Every gift is meant to help somebody else. So, in order to ensure that the gift of tongues is going to help the church, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 28, just write it down, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 28, Paul gives some Christ-given, Spirit-filled, inspired stipulations for the gift. All right, and please notice this. Every gift comes with stipulation. Just because you have the gift of teaching means you can't just teach whatever you want. Okay? We'll talk about that more in a second. So Paul gives some stipulations if you're going to speak in tongues. And I'll just give you the, the four listed. One, no more than three speakers of tongues should speak during the church service. He actually says it. Two, maybe three at most, and that's as much tongues as we got going on. Right there, with gentleness and respect, we can look at other churches and go, you're already disobeying God's word. The second one is this. They should speak one at a time. It's to be done in turn and in order. So there's not this cacophony of a hundred people speaking at the same time. That's against God's revealed word. Number three, their message must be translated for the edification of the church. It has to be translated. Somebody must stand up and interpret what it is that that person's saying. What happens if not? Number four, if no one can interpret, they must remain silent. Okay? Because why? When the church gathers, it's for mutual encouragement. All right? So that, notice, it just it stays as a personal edification, but it cannot be spoken out. I believe because of the clear disobedience to the commands of the written word of God, what we see and hear in many evangelical churches just should be ignored. All right? In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37 through 40, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 14, 37 through 40, he says this, if you're really spiritual, if you're really a prophet, you'll recognize my words, and if you don't recognize my words, you're not to be recognized. Did you catch that? If you ignore the Apostle Paul's stipulations, the church should ignore you. So the Word of God is dominant. So what does that mean for us? Is there any encouragement? Is there any consolation? Write this down. Use your supernatural abilities. Use your supernatural abilities. Buy the supernatural book. You got me? Yeah, you got it. Use it by this book. So I want you to see God creates this wonderful zone of freedom, but nevertheless there's a zone. There's boundaries. There's stipulations. And this goes with any gift. I want you to know this. Any of the gifts can be manipulated and abused. Can teachers teach falsely? Yes. 
Can administrators be bossy? Yes. Can helpers be self-serving? Yes. Can givers be self-serving? Yes. So can somebody mistakenly say something in the name of the Lord? Absolutely. I need you to catch that, so you need to be on high alert. Is it possible for someone to speak in tongues? Yes, but there's stipulations for them to speak in the church. There's always some guidelines. No gift is given free reign to do whatever that person wants. Why? Because what governs Paul's stipulations? Why is the Bible written? Why is 1 Corinthians 12 written? He's reminding you, you do have a gift. You do have a manifestation. You do have a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does want to show out in your life. But notice this, it's not just to puff you up. He goes on, I love this, wedged in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 is 1 Corinthians 13. And if you've been to any wedding, it's been read. It's what? The passage on love. I find it interesting. We take 1 Corinthians 13 and we apply it to a wedding between two people. And Paul goes, no, that's between two church members. Between two church members. Love is patient and kind. It goes on because here's the point Paul's trying to say. Your gift wasn't given to compete and to puff you up. It was given to complete their neighbor beside you. It's for their mutual encouragement and edification. And you're using it as a means to show off spiritually. That's not what the Holy Spirit wanted. And so Paul writes to say, you got to use your supernatural abilities. Yes, but you must use your supernatural abilities by the supernatural book. And if you won't, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Now, generally, ours, guys, ladies and gentlemen, our encouragement to you is not necessarily probably about the book side. But some of us still need to be prodded to, to, to be recognized this. God has given you a gift. What a wonderful thing that is. What a, I just believe that if we would all use the gift God had given us, we would, we would have mutual encouragement. We would all be built up in the faith. Everyone attending, everyone showing up, everyone speaking up, everyone serving with the God-given gift that they have given. What Imagine just what might happen in and through our church to the unbelieving world and to the believing community alike. Use your supernatural abilities. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.